0: This is Marketing Heroes Unfiltered, the journey to CMO, the podcast where we interview high-achieving B2B marketers to know their stories, struggles, and insights in this fast-paced and competitive industry, hosted by Leslie Carruthers and Danny Muskeplatt. Paul Reitzer is founder and CEO of Marketing AI Institute, co-author of Marketing Artificial Intelligence, AI, Marketing and the Future of Business, host of the Marketing AI Show podcast, and creator of the Marketing AI Conference, MACON. As a speaker, Raetzer is focused on making AI approachable and actionable for marketers and business leaders. A graduate of Ohio University's E.W. Scripps School of Journalism, Raetzer has consulted for hundreds of organizations, from startups to Fortune 500 companies. Previously, he was founder and CEO of PR2020, a digital marketing agency that he sold in 2021. This is a podcast for heroes, which is why you're here. Thank you so much for making time, Paul. You're I'm really-
1: happy to do it. Looking forward yeah. to the conversation.
0: Yeah, I was at MyCon. Yeah just in the end of july it's fantastic over 700 digital marketers marketers were there drinking from five fire hoses at the same time the main stage was just on fire both days and i really enjoyed the breakout session i attended your leadership marketing leadership ai session and mike kaput was doing the day-to-day i wish i could have been in both Or that they'd been recorded and I could have bought those suggestion for next year, (laughs) (laughs) although not having them recorded probably made it different. Like everybody was you were so great on stage, just like total open kimono and everybody else was saying what their problem was and how, you know, Paul literally said on stage, I'm telling you all everything. I don't Mm. talk about this stuff. Yeah, it was fantastic.
1: Yeah, the crowd was awesome. There was mm-hmm. so many cool ideas, I and mean, to have there 150, 150 people, people in, a in workshop, that session, yeah, yes, we were worried about it because we didn't yeah. know how a workshop would function with that many people. And I didn't even know, honestly, that that was going to be. They told me like a week before, they said you better really do well in that workshop. I said, okay, like why wouldn't I? And they're like, well, there's 150 people. And I was like, look at 150 people, and I thought we were capping this at like 70. And they're like, oh, right. people just kept buying it, and I was like, oh, wow. all right, that's a <laughs> good Not problem to then. have.
0: Not even the start of the conference and you got to be on your toes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Works out well. Yeah, yeah. So before we dive in, would you please share with us? How do you start your days?
1: Oh, boy. So I'm actually a pretty avid Twitter slash X user. So from a personal perspective, I take my kids to school. So I always take them to school. But when I first wake up, I actually check Twitter. So I have like very specific lists I've curated through the years and like a news list, a science list, an AI list. And I usually end my night with seeing what's going on in the world and what are the key things. And then I start my day that way, because most of the value I get out of Twitter and most of the AI information I extract is actually from our even highly curated list of people I get alerts for. And so there's very specific people in AI and very specific brands that I get notifications for. and that is. 80% of the time I'm on Twitter I'm checking those people that I get the notifications for and so it lets me kind of wake up and say okay what's going on what's happening it's almost like my own trending of what is going on in the world and I basically start with that and coffee like coffee is really critical Got that's it.
0: Great. I know that's how you build your sandbox for the podcast, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it is. And it's also like LinkedIn. I try and publish like once a day on LinkedIn and I try and put some context of something significant that's going on, and those usually end up becoming the main topics for our podcast the following week. So it's actually like Mike's guideposts of here's, you know, what I'm thinking about these things. And I just send it to him and I said, you know, here you go. But yeah, I, I try and kind of figure out like what is the one thing I want to put on today. And I do that on the weekend too. Saturdays and Sundays are actually a really good time to put thoughtful things on LinkedIn. They tend to do really well. That's great. I wouldn't have expected that actually. That's just interesting. Crazy. I had something I put up this past Sunday that's up to 170,000 impressions now. It just took oh, off. Yeah. It was at like 30,000 by the end of Sunday and then it just kept going. But yeah, I found like, I think there's just less clutter. And I think people who are going on on Sunday are probably, you know, maybe more strategic or more thinking about bigger picture stuff. And so I, I tend to save like sometimes the good stuff for the weekends because I think people just pay more attention to it and it impacts more people. Yeah. So what was your topic for Sunday, if I can ask? AI jobs, you know, disruption to knowledge work, which is a theme I've been, Leslie, you listen to the podcast, it's been a recurring theme, but it's becoming more and more urgent, in my opinion, to have these conversations about what's going to happen and how is it going to affect jobs? Mm-hmm. And I think it just resonated with people. I had this conversation with a friend of mine in the content team at Thomson
2: Roy, she wrote me over the weekend and said, I was struggling. I put something into ChatGPT. GPT, it came back and I'm pretty sure I'm going to lose my job because it was really <laughs> good. And I'm not super necessary if somebody can do inputs. I hear so that's that a, a lot. Very real topic, yeah, I'm sure. We've got sort of an order of questions that we go in, but I'd yeah. love your thoughts on that and just kind of the themes of what you put into your Sunday post.
1: So the general gist is I've been, I think, increasingly concerned that there's not enough dialogue around what could happen. So I think a lot of people just want to pretend like AI is just going to create more jobs and it'll be fine in the end and like it'll all all be great. And I don't necessarily agree. Like I think that there's gonna be this really messy period for the next like one to three years where AI is all of a sudden affecting every knowledge worker. So in the United States, there's 132 million full-time employees. 100 million of them are knowledge workers, people who think and create for a living. Marketers, consultants, attorneys, accountants, doctors, like everybody. And AI is going to be able to assist them in basically every cognitive function within two years. And no company I have talked to yet is even thinking about that. So, they're just starting to pilot AI projects. They're building AI councils, like they're doing the things you should be doing. But nobody is actually looking out ahead and saying, what if we actually Mm -hmm. save 30 to 50% of our time? What happens? Do we need as many people doing this work? So, I think this basic premise is that it's just going to work out. And I think there's a lot of people who push that idea. And I don't think people are thinking deeply enough about the reality of, you know, we're not saying AI is going to replace writers or SEO advisors or attorneys or anybody. But my challenge is, what if we just don't need as many of them? Mm-hmm. And so what I think people need to do is drill into like very specific, like at a team level or in an individual level in their company. Let's say you have 50 writers on staff or 25 SEO people, whatever it is. The question becomes, if you can save 30% of your time because these tools make you that much more efficient in order to maintain the same staffing level and not need, you not decide we're just going to get rid of a few people. You either have to increase the output. So there has to be demand for you to do more of what you do or you have to redistribute that time to something that isn't getting done. Those are two very viable options and that could prevent the loss of jobs. I'm just more of a realist that says, I mean, a lot of private equity backed companies and publicly traded companies who are just gonna take the, cut the losses. Like I'm a big advocate for like, I don't know what's gonna happen, nobody does. The best economists in the world don't know what's gonna happen. But we really need to start talking about this and we need companies to start being proactive in taking a human-centered approach to this, that the last resort is reducing staff, that we are going to go through A, B, C, and D as alternatives to take this time we're going to save and redistribute it. So that's kind of the gist of it. And I just kind of cited a number of different studies from the World Economic Forum and McKinsey and things about what different people are saying and pretty much like, hey, let's just have this conversation out in the open was my whole point. Wow. Wow.
0: Yeah, and I'm just looking up the gentleman's name who did the org chart.
1: Dan Slagan at JCON. Yeah. The CMO at tomorrow.io. It was an awesome talk. Yes, Mm -hmm.
0: it was. Reimagined and showed, here's how he accomplishes what looks like the job of 250 people with four. Yeah.
1: I mean, that's how I look at like the Marketing Institute. We have five employees. We just hired two more, but we've done what we've done. Run an international conference, built 50,000 subscribers, built a podcast with 130,000 downloads so far this year. All of that's with five people. And the content piece is like three of us. The other two people don't have anything to do with the content.
0: Granted, the three people are tired.
1: They are, but like probably not to a crazy degree, not to the degree people probably think Mm -hmm. that you'd have to work to do it. So we're realistically like if you rewound five years, you would need a team of 15 to 20 to do what we're doing right now. And so I look at it and say like, we can do that because we're starting from the ground up and we didn't have to get rid of anybody. We just built a more efficient team from the beginning. So you have those two dynamics. You have people who are just going to say, well, we're just going to build a smarter company from the ground up. It's more efficient, more resourceful, more intelligent. And then you have the bigger companies that have to actually figure out like, wow, this is going to disrupt the tech stack, the talent, everything. And it's harder to figure that out. So I think the small companies are going to love the next few years. Because they're going to be able to grow way faster and way more efficiently. The bigger companies are going to really go through some transformational changes that are going to, again, they're just going to be messy. Like, I I don't know other way to say it.
0: No, Steve Hasker, right? At Thomson Reuters. Just, y'all just made another acquisition. TR loves to grow by acquisition. And it's uh, AI for attorneys.
2: Yeah, we did. Yeah, so we grabbed two. See. We grabbed one on the tax side, one on the legal side. We grabbed a uh, case tax, which is a phenomenal tool on the legal side, and Sureprep, which is a great suite of tools on the tax side, because building AI from the ground up is expensive and it's slow. We're a big ship trying to move. I think that yeah. one of the struggles that I see in the marketplace is convincing our potential customers that AI can help them when they're so risk averse yeah. and there's a lot in the media. I don't know if you saw the latest Mission Impossible movie, but the bad guy is AI. And it's going to take over the world and that permeates the media. And so you've got this the fear, right? How are you going to protect my data? How are you going to make sure that we don't become the matrix, but also just saying, this is how we can help your firm get more efficient and save that the 30% we're talking about. And it's hard, man. I see B2B retailers really struggling with that messaging.
1: Yeah. It's, for I mean, it's like worth. anything else. If there's a lack of understanding, there's going to be fear and uncertainty. And I think the biggest challenge we face right now is just people don't really understand the technology. So that's our urgency has been, we have to educate people as quickly as possible, get smart people thinking about this, get them thinking about doing it responsibly, the human centered approach, and then hopefully people start making good decisions. But there's so many people from the top level down, CEOs of major companies, heads of VC firms, presidents of universities that are just overwhelmed by this whole Mm -hmm. thing. They just don't really know what to do about it. And they don't have the time to figure it out. They have other stuff to do. and. I have the blessing of like, this is my gig. I sold my agency in 2021, so I could focus on this like 100% of my time. And that's what I do. And I'm still overwhelmed by it. And I think about it 24 hours a day. Yeah. Incredible.
0: For Sure. I mean, this is a big, hairy problem. We talked yeah. about big, hairy problems on the show and what B2B digital marketers are facing today. And this one's, yeah, got four heads and big, sharp teeth. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's everywhere, and- right? And it's everywhere. Yeah. And it's amazing and wonderful and fascinating. Everyone loves to talk about it. And they're we're also all wearing adult diapers now. (laughs) Because, I mean, this is why the I literally smelled bad by the middle of the first day of Maycon, (laughs) because I was thinking so hard. I had B.O., (laughs) like, <laughs> oh my gosh. Seriously, because there are so many things to think about, and you did a fantastic job, you know, and yeah. the team, of bringing all those things forward, and it's overwhelming. Yeah. But I have to think about the org chart, because everybody gets focused on the, the cost savings. Yeah. Ooh, I'm going to save a bunch of money. I'm going to be way more profitable. How do I hide this? how I get it right but then it's okay now then use cases and what's the value that's provided because you're gonna have to make these. there's a lot of really critical thinking and a diverse set of topics that's yeah
1: it's I think for a lot of people it's chat GPT became AI realistically November 30th of last year when that was introduced it woke the world up to AI and a lot of people just thought AI was a writing tool like i'll figure mm-hmm. use ChatGPT, gpt and then hey, you come to a conference like macon and it's like oh my god i didn't even think about the ramifications of this technology and that it's going to yeah. be able to do these other things and totally. it's going to change organic search like do we even have blue links a year from now and yeah. what's going to happen to our traffic and what happens yeah. to my org chart and it's a lot like it really is a lot to process and if you do take it in over two days through the five fire hoses it Cause you to sweat a little bit. Like, <laughs> <laughs>
0: it was it, warm in the, the keynote room to the, in the morning. In my I was
1: comfortable on stage, so I, was, <laughs> I don't know what it was like on the
0: <laughs> Well, this is a good transition, maybe, Danny. Tell us your origin story, how it, you came up, because you've got a pretty interesting one that puts you in a good spot to be a leader in the space of AI and supporting us all and seeing what there is to see.
1: Yeah, so the synopsis was... Ohio University is where I went to college and I actually went in pre-med that lasted about four weeks. I failed out of pre-med because I didn't go to the BIOS 170 class for the first few weeks. So I needed to find a new career and I realized I like writing and I looked at the time we had print books. Appreciate that. Like, remember that? Print books and dial in. There was no like online classes. Uh-huh. And I found a few things that you could do with writing. One was an English major and the other was journalism. I didn't even know you had a journalism school. I didn't yeah. look into the journalism school. Yeah. So I was like, English, Top I don't know what to do with that. Nation.
0: Top What's 10 in the nation. Oh, yeah. So it was cool. like. we both graduated from that school. Yeah. yeah. Yes.
1: And my, I was told I would not be graduating from that school. Like I had a 1-3 fall quarter freshman year. And they're like, you will never get into the journalism school. Like it, they only oh accept gosh. like 10 transfer students Oh, it's a year. not
0: easy to get in there. You have yeah, to take the like, test in. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You're wow. never getting in. So I was like, all right, well, I'm, I'm going to try. So i spent the next few years and i did eventually get in and i graduated from there and i started at a pr agency out of college spent five years there left started my own agency and it was nothing with ai it was 2005 but i was about standardized services set pricing i wanted to try like a different service model but what ended up happening was we caught the front end of like the marketing technology revolution so 2007 the iphone Twitter. Facebook's now a thing. YouTube's two years old. Google's seven years old. The world started changing. The buyer experience started changing. And so that really led to the growth of our agency. We became HubSpot's first partner. We started building HubSpot programs for clients. And then in 2011, IBM Watson won on Jeopardy. And so I was writing the manuscript for my first book, The Marketing Agency Blueprints, shortly after that time. And when I finished the manuscript in the summer of 2011, I went back and said, "Okay, what is Watson? Like, how did it do that? And the thing I wanted to solve was clients would come to our agency and say, hey, we have one hundred thousand dollars or we have a million dollars, like whatever their budget was. How do we achieve our goal? Five hundred new leads a quarter, like whatever the goal was. And what I had come to believe was that the human mind was incapable of solving that. So when I graduated from Ohio University in 2000, there was like 10 ways to spend your marketing dollars. By 2011, there was like 10,000 ways. So I was trying to figure out like, what is Watson? What is AI? And can I use that technology to predict what a client should do? Could I build more intelligent marketing strategies was basically the premise so that led to me starting to read books about AI and try and figure out what it was. It took me years to comprehend it. And then in 2014, I wrote my second book. And the 50,000-word manuscript, there's like 700 words about the origin of the marketing intelligence engine. And I basically told the story of our research and my thesis that AI would eventually transform everything in marketing. And it would eventually make all these predictions and run these campaigns. And there was a theory. That came out in 2014. And then 2015, I started exploring the idea that AI could write content. The Associated Press at the time was using a technology called Automated Insights to automate the writing of earnings reports. So they went from 300 a quarter to 3,000. And I thought AI just wrote these things. I started a project called Project Copy Scale. Could we scale copywriting with AI? The answer at the time was no. It wasn't even AI that they were using, I came to find. But that led to the formation of Marketing AI Institute in 2016 to research this topic and try and figure out the future of marketing. And so I did it underneath my agency. It was just a DBA of the agency, but a separate domain. And within like the first couple of years, we had like 7,000 subscribers, all these like Mm -hmm. famous entrepreneurs and VCs and analyst firms was like, oh, okay. Some people are paying attention. And then I split it off in 2019 as its own company, launched the marketing at conference. And then 2021, I I sold it off, the agency off, so I could focus on the institute. So that's kind of like roughly how we got to today, skipping a few milestones along the way. Yeah.
2: We always ask the question, what's changed in marketing since you started now? And you sort of already answered that, right? It's seismically different. (laughs) So how does that change who you hire, who you recruit, how you train? I mean, you're looking for a very different skill set than 20 years ago, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I hired a lot of people in my agency through the years. A lot of them were Ohio University journalism school grads, actually. I liked hiring writers. I liked hiring people who were critical thinkers, had strong strategic minds. I would say that stays true. Like, I still find strategic thinkers to be the hardest people to get. Like, I think you can teach a lot of skills. What I have found is strategic thinking you have or you don't. You can hone it, like, you can make someone a better strategic thinker. But if they don't naturally connect the dots on things, if they're not naturally curious and consuming information at all times, like you can't teach that. Like they either do that or they don't. So I've always looked for really strong strategic minds and figured I can teach most of the other stuff. You know, you'd look at personality traits and intuition and do they fit you know within the culture? Like are they good people who want to do good things like those? Can't overlook that kind of stuff to me. I will say we just hired two people, B two B marketers. Like these are we're doing at the institute. One is a media and, and content role, and another one is an education and academy. Like they'll kind of work within those areas. And we had them use AI in their application. We used to do writing tests where we would say, "Hey, here's a topic, write a blog post." We now, I believe, the way we did it was we had them write something with GPT four, and they had to share the prompt they used, how they prompt the system, what the output was, and then. I think they have to write their own version and then they have to like compare the two basically. So we're in essence teaching them how to use these tools and we want to see that they can work with the AI. The other thing we did is took the job description and went bullet by bullet and looked at an AI assessment, like an impact assessment of the job. So Mm -hmm. I was basically saying, okay, a year from now, do I need someone doing this work or is the AI going to do it? Like if you think about someone's role and say, okay, 150 hours a month is basically allocated for these 25 things they're going to do every month. I would look at those 25 things and say, okay, a year from now, how much, what percentage of this work is AI going to be doing? And so now is it going to be like, this is a hundred hour a month job versus 150. And if so, how are we going to redistribute that person's time? So I'm basically like future proofing roles to the best Mm -hmm. of my ability so that we don't run into a situation where a year from now we realize we didn't need that hire. That's incredible making it up on the fly. Sounds really smart, probably. And it sounds like we got all this figured out. I have no idea. Like, we're just like, oh, we got to hire two people. Well, let's not like not need them in a year. Let's So we're literally kind of like in real time, figuring this stuff out and trying to apply the things we know and adapting the way we do things moving forward. I don't have some like grand plan that redefines all these business processes. But it is interesting
2: because it's a very
1: different way of planning,
2: right? Like You know, I think about every organization I've been at, you get a new anybody in the C-suite, you get a new chief digital officer, chief marketing officer. And when they join the company, they have to do something big to prove their worth. Right. And so they're going to change the org with a vision that's similar to what they've done in the past. And that's what it's based on. It's not based on data. It's not based on AI. It's not based on future proofing the jobs. So I love the idea of putting it up against a bit of a litmus test. To say, where are we going to be in a couple of years, as opposed to this is what I've seen work in the past and it feels comfortable. Therefore, higher 10 people lay off 30 percent of them when the economy starts to contract. It's pretty right. incredible thinking, even if it's first or second draft.
1: I think the way I look at it is the overarching concept here is human centered. If you apply that, then everything you do, you basically ask yourself the question, okay, is this a human-centered way to do this? Is hiring someone without thinking through the need for them a year from now, human-centered? No, like I have to solve for this person. If I'm bringing them in, I want them to build a career here. And whether it's a stepping stone or a permanent thing, like I want to make sure they're needed. And so I think it just kind of comes out of that approach of what's a more human way to build a company. It's incredible. I applaud that. Absolutely. Let me,
0: for sure, Danny, applause. Yes. That's awesome. And let me jog for a second, because I heard you say, Paul, acknowledge that, hey, I didn't have a plan. I didn't say, oh, we're going to go do boom, 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 here are the steps Mm -hmm. to get to here. Looking back, I've asked this question of a number of folks here on the show and other places. You always have three things. You can look back and say, these three things, I didn't realize how smart they were at the time or how lucky I was at the time that these things happened and had me be able to do what I'm doing now or put me on track for what I'm doing now. What do you see?
1: For me, when I started my first business... I always wanted to just hire the absolute best people. And if someone came available at a certain time, like I wanted to hire them, whether I had a need for them at that moment or not. So I think surrounding myself with really talented people who, while buying into the vision, weren't just there to do whatever I asked. So I say like, you know, Tracy, who's Tracy Lewis, who's been with me, she's my COO now. I hired her straight out of OU in 2009, I think. Tracy has never once just done what I asked her to do. Like if I say, hey, Tracy, I got this great idea. I'm going to launch this new thing. She is not the person who's going to say, great, let's do it. Like, let's go. She's going to sit there and say, well, did you think about this? Or what if this doesn't work? And we tried it last time. So she has never, from the time she was 21 until now, feared questioning me. I've always tried to (laughs) capture that and push that into the interns. Like I don't want even an intern just doing what I tell them to do without thinking it through. Now they may come and I was like, just do it. Like, trust me, like it's going to work. <laughs> I want people to come to me and challenge. And I also yeah. then always train them, like, don't come to me with problems, come to me with answers. Like, don't come to me. I don't, again, if I'm careful, the intern or the COO and ask me to fix something, come to me and say, I've identified a problem. Here's what I think we should do. And mm-hmm. I'll tell you if I think you're right or not. But like, but again, you have to hire those kind of people. So I hired people with specific skills and traits. That fit into that. The second is, I did always have a vision. Like, I I think for my first company, and certainly for this company, as a leader, you have to believe in your ability to make something better or something significant, or else what is the point of following you? What is the point of betting your own career on the CEO or whatever, the founder, if you don't believe in what they're trying to do? So I think I've pursued things that were worthy of pursuit, and I've had an ability to kind of share that vision with people. And then I'd say the third thing is, as an entrepreneur you have to take on an insane amount of risks and thrive in the uncertainty like i read something early really early in my life like a lot of people have ideas but very few people have like the will to see those ideas through and that's mm-hmm. like what an entrepreneur is, is just someone who's like going to battle through anything and i think there's so many times in your life as an entrepreneur where stuff just goes sideways more often than it goes right it's going sideways and you have to have your moments of like Maybe it's doubt, maybe it's whatever, but do that on your own (laughs) because when you show back up, your team needs to see that you're going to figure it out. And I think certainly with like the pandemic was an example of that, like stuff goes sideways and you have to solve it. They're depending on you. So I think just, you know, as an entrepreneur, I've always, I don't know about like embraced it. I think it was just in my nature to be okay with it and to figure out how to get through it. That's great.
0: That leads to Do you have
1: a third? I don't know. Was that three? I did oh, talent, two. I did vision, and I did will. We'll oh, go with those okay, for three. There you go. <laughs> no, I just
0: pulled up Crystal Nose on your LinkedIn profile, by the Crystal way.
1: Crystal Nose.
0: Yeah. It's one of the AI tools. Mike knows about it.
1: Oh yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it's,
0: a, it's a sales tool. It supports you in sales. So it gives you like the disk assessment. It gives you personal oh, okay. profiling. What was it say. Well, your risk tolerance and mine are right snugged up next to each other on the okay. far end. So I hear you. That's one of the things. I've yet to meet anyone who has a higher risk tolerance than me. You're pretty close. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> we are. It's definitely an odd thing. What would you recommend? So if you were speaking to a B2B, specifically business to business, digital marketer today, hmm. and you could pick for them the three things for them that will have them succeed in this new era, what would they be?
1: You have to be curious. I mean, yeah, I think with where we're going, it's just going to become more and more uncertain and things are going to move so fast. So I think they have to be curious. B2B marketing certainly this probably applies to any practitioner, any professional. They have to be very driven. You have to be intrinsically motivated to kind of get this. And I think they have to be willing to be the one to raise their hand because in, in AI, nobody knows what to do. And I always say on stage, like you heard me say it at Macon like, I think the change agents are going to come from everywhere, uh, which is exciting mm-hmm. because again, if you're the intern or an associate or whatever your role is, nobody in the company understands this stuff. Yeah. You can be the one that goes and takes the initiative, reads a couple books, takes an online course, listens to some podcasts and says, listen, I'd, I'd like to start an ad council here. Like, I think we can solve this. And my yeah. guess is people in your company say. Awesome. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs>
0: like, yeah, yeah. Start a
1: book club about AI. Start a weekly demo with AI tools, like whatever it is. So, yeah. curiosity, drive, and then just the willingness to step up and be someone who helps figure this stuff out.
0: Yeah. It really struck me when you were on stage with Jessica Reha. Am I saying her yeah. last name correctly?
1: Yeah. From VMware.
0: Yes. You said to her at the end of your interview, you're back and forth, you are a world leader in implementing AI at the <laughs> AI enterprise counts, level. Yeah. And she just kind of was like, <laughs> Okay, <laughs> I,
1: I guess I am. I guess there really many of us are there
0: <laughs> because this is where we are now. Like she yeah. can be, and she's gone through all of the things you've recommended: setting up the AA council, engaging leadership, identifying use cases, vetting tools, making guidelines in the organization. It's a big deal, and that was really striking to me. I'm like, I got that. That was a mic drop moment.
1: And she started in February. With a 23 year old at VMware who was also interested. So, two of them started as we're recording. What, 30 people? I think they now have on the AI council.
0: Yeah. And you said the other thing you said in that interview was that you will need a full time person.
1: I think FTE
0: to run the council.
1: Yeah. I think so. I think most enterprises by next year will probably have someone who's charged Mm -hmm. with that. But I don't know if it's an AI ops person. I I don't know what the title is going to be. But I could see a council like that at a company like VMware. Or you may actually have a couple people who are FTs dedicated yeah. to just AI adoption and education yeah. in the company.
0: And you and I have been out of OU, you know, a few minutes. Yeah. And there are plenty of jobs that when we were in college didn't exist. Yes. But now it's like in three years, in two years, in one year, there are going to be jobs mm-hmm. that didn't exist.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I just don't know what they're going
2: to be.
0: Right? <laughs>
2: yeah. It's incredible. I'm not mad, Leslie, because that was the question that I was going to ask. So I'm going to pivot to another one because I was going to ask all about talent and managing down and how you ensure that they continue to grow and thrive and get smarter and smarter as they go. But I'll pivot. Let's go back in time. You've come quite a long way. Very successful guy. If you could go back in time, is there anything that you would do differently?
1: No, I generally try and like live my life where I won't look back and have regrets I think I've done a really good job of keeping my priorities in place, like family first and team. And, you know, when I had an agency clients, like I think I've always had a moral compass to do what's right. And the way I kind of always look at it is like I just want to be happy with where I am and content with where I am. And to be there, you have to not regret what you've done. So, like, I go back and say, yeah, I wish I would have gone to biology, you know, 170 my first four <laughs> weeks of school and not lost scholarships and almost had my parents shake me out of school. Like, that was dumb. But led to journalism school and led to where I am today. So if I, I, my daughter is 11 the other day. She actually said, she's like you know how weird it would be, like how life would be different if you had gone to medical school and been a doctor. She's like, you wouldn't have been home as much. And I was like, no, you're yeah. probably right. So, no, I, I don't really think about life that way. I, I rarely look back and say, like, what should I have done differently? Again, as long as I'm content with where I am today, then it's cool. And I kind of look as like, well. I like to be in better physical shape? Should I have not stopped playing basketball for five years? Like, yeah, probably not. But it's cool. Like, I'll just start today. That's how I kind of look yeah. at life. It's like, I, it doesn't do me any good. I don't gain anything from sitting around regretting stuff I did before.
2: That's great. Good answer. I like I it. I
1: wish man. I had, like, some awesome life memory I could share with you that, like... But no, I, I, I just don't think that way, I guess. Right. Like if you turned right instead of left, you would have been a millionaire at 18 or something like that. Yeah. I don't, I yeah, don't think We hear I'm a lot of that down. on the podcast. I'm just happy where I am. I'm good. Oh, I just great. focus on what's next.
0: What keeps you up at night?
1: AI going wrong right now. And my son, who still comes in my room at 3 a.m. Oh, he's, geez. He's 10. He he's 10. As a habit of coming in the room. <laughs> I worry about the immediate downsides of AI, like the use in political campaigns, impact on democracy, misguided AI policies in schools, teachers who don't understand AI being asked to like administer policies they don't comprehend, rapid spread of misinformation, fake content online, like literal fake content, synthetic content, media that the average American or worldwide citizen doesn't even know AI can make videos and images and words. So people not knowing what's real, that worries me a lot. Don't worry about like the existential risk to humanity. I get why that's being talked about a lot, that AI could go so wrong that it goes like sci-fi wrong, but nothing comes from me thinking about that much, but I can do something about the education side and the jobs and the impact on society. I will find myself waking up in the middle of the night, like thinking about that. And what do I do? How do I help teachers understand it? I think about that kind of stuff a lot. What do I do for my kids? They're 11 and 10. What's their life look like in five years? I, I think about that a lot. Do we have the right people to, to help us navigate this? I mean, aside from yourself and teachers, I mean, do
2: we have the right people in Congress to figure out how to regulate some of this stuff? How do you combat synthetic content? Like you're saying, I mean, it could sway elections if yeah, done in a sophisticated it, way.
1: It will sway elections. Yeah. Like th- some of these things are inevitable. And that, I think that's what worries me is there's some stuff that I just see as inevitable in the next 12 months. And it's almost like it's kind of too late to solve some of these things right now, but we need, again, like what can we do starting today to solve for tomorrow? Not like Mm -hmm. we can't go back in time and put this back in the box. I think politicians are trying. And I think like right now, most of what's happening in Congress, like in, in the United States, at least is more of an exercise in politics, like trying to figure out if voters care. Cause right now it's very bipartisan. Like everybody's like, yeah, we should regulate AI and nobody's debating anything about it. From that perspective. And I think it's mainly because they just don't know which side to take on it. Like, it Mm. doesn't seem like consumers really care yet, like, voters care. So I think it's possible that nothing happens because there's no real incentive for anyone at the moment. Plus, the United States can't slow it down. I think that's when I think about the inevitables, it's like, are they going to regulate it? No, they can't. Like, they're going to put some stuff in place and there'll be some guardrails. But at the end of the day, we're talking about a geopolitical issue here. Like, they have to win. And you don't win by stopping innovation. If anything, I think the innovation is going to accelerate. I think the government's going to launch their own Manhattan project style initiatives around AI that we may or may not know about. The advancement of the technology is inevitable. And we have to deal with how can we educate people. I think is the best thing we can do right now is education at all levels, politicians, teachers, administrators, citizens, like people just need to know what this technology is and what it can do. Yeah. I have to ask a, a slightly different question. It's, it's got the same
2: root, but I spent a number of years in Hollywood and you're mm-hmm. seeing all this stuff about strikes and, you know, how AI is going to start creating that type of content. I'd love your take on that. Is it a good thing? Cause it could create new big things. Is it going to be a risk to jobs? What is your take on the creative side of things? Art it's, and writing and scripts? Yeah, and stuff.
1: It's, it's really complicated. So generally on creativity it's the hardest thing for me personally because my wife is an artist she was a painting major and an art history major my daughter wants to be an artist she is an artist she wants to do it professionally my son wants to develop video games and i'm a writer the reality is i can do those things now and much more and that's a really hard thing i had to deal with that a lot last year i would say i had some personal issues with it like trying to explain it to my daughter and show her what it can do and trying to explain it to my wife and trying to accept for myself that it was a thing the way I look at it is like, you have to solve like, what is creativity and can AI be a creative? And I dealt with this in our book and and I thought deeply about it. And what I ended up saying was, AI can create, I would say it is creative, but it's not like humans. There's no experience. There's no life experience. There's no emotion. Like there's no awareness of what it's creating. So the things that make human content unique and human c- outputs unique is the fact that it's done by a human who has those things. AI is just really good at synthesizing those things. So you give me two paintings and I don't tell you which the human did, which the AI did. You're going to look at them like, maybe you like the AI one better. Like, that's an amazing painting. I love it. And then I tell you, this one was a human and this one is an AI. You're going to f- immediately feel different about it because mm-hmm. you're going to now realize like the AI felt nothing when it made it. And why do we listen mm-hmm. to music? Why do we look at art? Why do we read poems? It's because of the human experience that comes through it, that someone had the gift to create this thing. And so to me, AI stuff is cool. Like you can look at it, like it can write cool stuff. But I think what ends up happening is people crave human content. Like they, when they realize anybody can make that stuff, you still want to see the artist. You still want to see the writer. You still want to see the actors. That being said, I think Hollywood's in for some stuff. Like let's say you want to write a new movie script and you can train a model on the last, like let's say it's a Star Wars movie. make come out with another Star Wars movie. You feed it all. How many of them are about nine? I don't, I don't even know. So you feed it all nine movies, it knows all the characters, it can learn from not only the video, but the scripts themselves, it can learn the characters, the scenes, the plots, everything. And you say, let's create a script based on this, and this is what's going to happen. And, and the thing creates these amazing concepts and scripts of what could happen. So again, it goes to this idea of like, we don't not need script writers but are we going to need as many? Are we just going to make more movies because now we can write the scripts in half the time? Like, I don't know the answers to these, but I know AI will be very good at writing scripts. I know it'll be very good at creating synthetic background people. So you might not need as many extras. It's able to do these things now in the current generation mm-hmm. of this technology. Two years from now, they're going to blow your mind what it can do. Mm-hmm. And so I just sympathize with the actors and the screenwriters and everybody. Like, I totally understand the challenge there. I also understand what the technology is capable of now and roughly what I think it's going to be capable of a year or two from now. And I think it's a very tough spot to be in. And I think they have to be very careful because I think this negotiation is very, very important to the future of that industry. (laughs) That's all I'll say. Yeah, very well said. Thanks Mm -hmm. for that.
0: Is there some burning topic or something you'd like to share about, Paul, that's important to you that we can help get some light on?
1: I think I go back to just the responsible use of ai like the thing people listen to this and I, I understand like this topic can be a little heavy and like overwhelming if you haven't thought about this stuff if you just think again ai's AI chat gbt and it's you know cute and whatever and, and now you're like oh my god it's going to take jobs and just take downfall democracy like that's a lot to process in 30 <laughs> minutes so what i always tell people is like you have to take the next step like this is how i get through my life right now like i could be overwhelmed by this stuff all day long what I look at is like each day, did I take a step forward? Like, did I do something to help advance this cause in some way? And so, I think for a lot of marketers, a lot of business leaders, that means like raising your hand to get an AI council going. It means starting the discussion around what are our generative AI policies? What are we allowed to use, not allowed to use? How do we use them? What are our responsible AI principles? Like, how do we ensure a human centered approach to this stuff? And so, I think for most people, that's probably the best action they can take. We need more people talking to politicians. We need more people talking to school boards about their AI policies or lack of. We need all that stuff. But that's probably going to be once you really understand this stuff and you can really have those higher level conversations. The immediate thing most marketers are going to be able to do is start something within their company to raise the bar of understanding and education to ensure responsible adoption of the technology.
0: Got it. And that's great advice. A couple of the things that i Pulled in my notes from the podcast, as you mentioned earlier, being curious, Mm -hmm. right? And then not putting your head in the ground about it. Yeah. And just embracing that everything will keep evolving, right? Rather than make it wrong. Yep. Those were big takeaways for me.
1: Again, this is the least capable AI we will ever use in our life. I said that Mm -hmm. on stage. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a part that most people just don't even comprehend. Like, it's hard enough to look at what we have today and realize this is real. Yeah, And so to think about what it's going to be able to do, I mean, it's doubling in its capability every like six to 12 months right now. It's incredible. So GPT-4, which is maybe the most mind-blowing technology I've ever experienced in my life. I mean, it was released in March. It was six months old when it was released. So, I mean, that technology is well over a year old. It, yeah. It's just crazy.
0: <laughs> it's great. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. George Steinitzer reposted something that you posted just the other day i'm looking to see if i can see it here i don't know if i'll find it while we're talking but he put a comment on it about what do you think about a specific element of something mm-hmm. that you wrote and but having come right off the conference and who said this maybe you'll remember maybe it was you that it's just difficult to even think about these things because it's not how it is now and we can think from how it is now and how we think now
1: Yeah, <laughs> I, was, I think i said like humans think in a linear path you plan and you think and you envision based on what you know to be true and so much about the future is going to be stuff that you have no comprehension of so that's a hard thing it's an exponential it's like how does a Mm -hmm. human mind conceive of something that's 10x better every Mm -hmm. 12 months like that's it's not possible
0: no very interesting that's a chinese curse may you live in interesting times right
2: (laughs) Speed round. All right, so we're just going to ask you a series of questions, answer as fast as you can. We'll get through as many as we can. Okay. If your life is a movie, Paul, who plays you? Oof, boy, that's <laughs> well, a great
1: start. I don't have a good answer for that one. Who plays me? Paul Ryan, because everybody, when Paul Ryan was in the the scene, like thought that he looked like me. So just um, oh yeah, Paul Ryan's not an actor, it's but similar similar <laughs> hair, I guess. But it'll other work, than that, it'll
0: work. what's your favorite KPI?
1: <laughs> My favorite KPI. I mean revenue (laughs) it's the one that matters i don't know that's right (laughs) i love it brutal honesty what's the last book you read i'm reading skunk works right now the Mm -hmm. story of like lockheed martin and development of like different spy planes and stuff
0: it's the first
1: non-ai book i've read in like two years so Mm oh well
0: this is going to be a great one for paul danny who's the most fascinating contact in your phone
1: jeez oh man
0: i know right we should give you the top Uh, 10
1: I'll say our mutual friend, Joe Pulizzi, only because he was messaging me today on something else. So he's top of mind and he's interesting for sure.
0: Yes. Nice.
1: (sighs) If you could be famous for one thing, what would it be? You know, it's funny. My kids ask me if I'm famous. It's like a thing they ask all the time because they've been to the conference and they see up on stage. And I always tell them like, no, I've tried to help a lot of people. And so I've been successful in some ways in helping a lot of people. So I don't consider that fame. If I wanted to be known for something, hopefully at some point in my life, we can look back and say I I made a positive impact on the responsible use of this stuff beyond marketing, but played some small part in making the world better with it.
0: The best compliment you've ever gotten.
1: Somebody actually came up to me at Macon and said that you don't know who I am. You've never met me, but I've gone to a lot of events and this is probably the best event I've ever been to. And I said, well, that that is very Mm -hmm. kind. And she said, everyone's so humble. Hmm. She's a very Midwest feel. She's like, no offense, like the other parts of the country, but like, it's a very Midwest yeah. feel. Like everyone actually seems to care. And I said, like, yeah, it's a great team. And she said, no, it's you. Like they're following hmm. what you do. And I didn't know what to say. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> thank you. Like my mom would be happy yeah. you said that. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. awesome. Yeah. I heard so that. I think humble. Actually
0: also on the floor. Yeah. By the way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. I think humility Uh, is very important. Somebody says that about me, then that's a wonderful thing to hear.
2: Love that. And so I think that that'll play into the next question. What are five words to describe you?
1: I think humble has to be one of them. I mean, I would never use that word on my own because I think it. Right. Because you're (laughs) humble. (laughs) It means you're not. (laughs) I would say I am curious. I am very driven. I'm very family focused. I think I care deeply about what I do and I don't know, purpose-driven probably too, like intrinsically driven just to like do stuff. But I think purpose-driven, it's like I do it for a reason and it's not money. Yeah. That's awesome.
0: Great. All right. Well, we'll let you go so you can have a bio break before you're five. Thank you so much.
1: <laughs> hey, this is a blast. Really nice to meet you, Paul. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me.
0: And I think you are famous. You can tell your kids yes when they ask the next time.
1: Don't tell them that. <laughs> they think because i'm on youtube i'm famous like a...
0: <laughs> it's the new criteria yeah, for them, I was like,
1: yeah you're on youtube channel you're famous
0: you're an, i'm That's an great. influencer so I'm famous. <laughs>
1: yeah. i don't care if you're on the cover of a magazine it's like your yeah, youtube channel
0: <laughs> you yeah. love it awesome all right, <laughs> all right thank thanks. you bye-bye right. take care thanks Paul. Thank you for staying tuned. If you're enjoying these conversations, we would appreciate it if you subscribed and give us a five-star rating. It helps us increase the podcast's reach. Thank you. See you next week with more inspiring stories. This episode of Marketing Heroes is brought to you by The Search Guru, produced by Circle Audio and podcast cover by Andra Lazorde.